Hello and welcome to the Sentient Media podcast where we meet the people who are changing the way we think about and interact with the world around us. Our guest today has helped expose mainstream audiences to animal and environmental issues long hidden from public view. I'm thrilled to welcome award-winning journalist, longtime animal advocate and sentient media contributing writer, Jessica Scott-Reed. I am so excited to chat with you today, Jessica. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is long overdue. I've been working with Sentient for so long. I'm so glad to now be able to do the podcast. Yeah, I'm thrilled. Like, yeah, it just struck me one day. I was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> we haven't spoken to Jess. <laughs> um, but actually, it, it fits really well because this week we're focusing in on animals in the media so it's almost like this was the perfect moment yes. uh, for us to have this conversation um so firstly I like uh, it's it's pretty obvious it's pretty self-evident that uh, I love your reporting um you're always, <laughs> you're always on the pulse with what's happening um and I guess it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about um how you came into journalism and what drives your desire to write and to tell these stories uh, yeah, I, I didn't start uh, writing about animals to begin with. Uh, it wasn't really even a niche that existed um, when I first started working in journalism. Um, I do have a background in communications, uh, and then I ended up doing a master's degree in cultural studies. And while I was doing that, um, I started blogging uh, about food and culture. I was living overseas. Uh, and then as I started writing about food and culture, that moved into a bit more of um, ethical eating and what that really means and the eat local movement and more environmental issues connected to food. And as that was going on through my professional work, personally, um, I was going through these thoughts and questions too. Uh, and eventually over time, my work and my lifestyle sort of melded together into this idea of no longer eating animals. Um, and at the same time, I thought to myself, I really just want to write about animals. Uh, and, and I kind of gave up all of the other superfluous things that I was doing on the side and really just focused on that uh, and thought, is this something I could really do? Just write about animals? Uh, and eventually, it didn't take off right away, but eventually um, through different channels of animal welfare and writing about food systems, it became my full-time gig. And now I've been doing it uh, almost exclusively for over six years and really kind of creating this, carving out this space for animal issues uh, and voices in the media. And it's such an honor and, and I, take a, I take it as a huge responsibility. Aside from the articles that you've written, what is the most recent article that you've read in mainstream media that actually centers farmed animals? That's a good question. I think um, more broadly, I like, to, I like what The Guardian does. I also like uh, what Vox does, their future perfect vertical. Um, these more broadly, I think, are moving towards centering animals, farmed animals, um, as actual active players in these stories, not just these sort of commodities or objects that are, you know, like a, a mention at the bottom of the story. I think that these places are really starting to see that not only is there other audiences who care about the animal issue within the story, but that the animals themselves deserve to be centered as characters within these narratives, and in particular, their suffering. Um, so yeah, I really, I really look to those two at this point, along of course with sentient media, um, for to get the animals' perspective on on what's happening to them. Mm. Yeah, I think that very often we see a lot of content that comes out that can like animals are like the the byproduct of the story yeah. and it goes under like a really human-centric lens and that's always 
Yeah, and it is something that we, because obviously at Senior Media, we have the Writers Collective, we have these community of, of advocates who want to get this kind of content out there, and actually presenting with a human-centric lens is something that we do recommend to people, because that's something that's going to get, it's more likely to get published while we're still yep. fighting for this narrative to get centred. Like, how do you kind of balance that? How do you, like, balance the suffer, you know, the animal story and the human story or, you know, the, the financial, like, all of these different angles that you could possibly have? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, so it really depends on the publication because as a freelancer, I write for so many uh, and I really love my work in the op-ed sections, especially of the newspapers here in Canada. So the Global Mail, the Toronto Star and the Winnipeg Free Press, I regularly contribute there. And they each do things a little differently, but I try to really find that sweet spot of where the animal can be centered, but where a mainstream audience is still going to... Um, find it accessible and relatable. Uh, and some publications let you do a little bit more, some a little less of that. Um, I like to open with a, you know, perhaps a, a circumstance that the animal finds themselves in um, to really bring the animal to the forefront of the story. Uh, but really that is a, a trick to each publication and each piece I write to really find that sweet spot of where it can be accessible, but also centering the animals. Mm, yeah, that's a really that's really good advice, and I think it also makes me think of the of the numbers, like the numbers of farmed animals that we talk about, whether it's you know land animals or aquatic animals. These you know billions and trillions um, are, are so difficult to talk about and so difficult for people to comprehend like what what, what mm -hmm. a factory farm looks like or what it looks like on a global scale so bringing it down to kind of an individual animal um, yes. or an individual story yeah is there any, are there any stories that you've done that you remember telling like because I, I know you used to do a lot of um reporting on um at, like rescue sanctuaries and things like that is there any story of any individual animal that like that comes to your mind yeah, I really, I had a really great gig for a while uh, with Tenderly Magazine. It's, it's now lo no longer uh, through medium.com where I got to write sanctuary stories on like a monthly basis. And it saved my life sometimes every month after writing about such horrible things to be able to focus on these incredible rescue stories of, of a particular animal or a small grouping of animals that, you know, become named characters, the front running characters of these stories where their rescue the individual people who are behind their rescue, you know, play like the supporting role, which is something you never see. Um, and it really was a great gig. I'm so sad Tenderly Magazine is no longer, but the, the stories are still there for all to see. And often I would tie it to, to the issue of the month sort of thing. So if I was writing about say the horse meat uh, industry here in Canada, I would try and find, you know, a rescued horse and tell that story for Tenderly Magazine. So that after again, all the horrible things I had to write that month, I'd find a silver lining, a happy ending story. To, to do there and it really it really was a great balance for a while yeah and I think that that like just thinking about animal advocates in general I think that going to a rescue sanctuary and thinking about these stories of these individual uh not not just the the animals but the people at those sanctuaries who are rescuing these animals it's like it gives you you know a, a, a bit yes. of positivity it gives you a kind totally. of a something something nice to to think about um but zooming out like in, in your eyes, what do you think, like, what does the media landscape look like for animals? <laughs> it depends where you look. Uh, <laughs> definitely. I mean, you could say that about media landscape in general, right? Like we are seeing a lot of different mediums within the media landscape. We are seeing a lot of different voices, platforms, uh, political bias happening. Um, in a good way, this is opening up space for a lot of other voices and perspectives, including animal advocates and animals themselves. 
Um, but more broadly, it can be problematic depending on where you go with it. I think it's in gen generally speaking a good thing because it gives people like you and I and other advocates space to tell these stories. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, the internet is limitless. Uh, and I think the work that Sentient Media is doing to get these stories on the forefront of you know, search engine pages is really prolific. Um, and it'll allow us to continue pushing these stories towards the audiences that aren't seeing them, which is who needs to see them. Um, and the internet's giving us that tool. So I think I think the media landscape is looking good. I cautiously say that. That's really nice to hear. And I know you're, you're writing about the uh, the use of pronouns for animals. So I know like obviously at Sentient Media, we have in our editorial standards that we use pronouns uh, for, for animals um, and we use, you know, especially if the if the gender is known of the animal and other outlets like the guardian do have that in their editorial standards but they don't always use it even when the gender of the animal is known um so yeah i'm curious to hear like you know uh, your take on on that yeah i'm working on a piece right now maybe when the podcast comes out the story will be out um discussing how you know typical media guidebooks style books to say to use the word it to refer to animals when the gender or name isn't known um and that this might not hold a lot of power in a lot of people's mind but i think it does because you know media mass communication in a variety of forms feeds our understanding um of the world around us it, it permeates culture it permeates the legal system right the fact that that we can refer to animals as it in mass media and then that they can be considered property within the legal system i don't think that that's a, an unrelated issue um, and it's important that we move forward being able to do it. And I think even just writers, advocate writers like us have the power to push that on an individual basis because I do it um, when I write for different publications, um, newspapers, I use, you know, the appropriate pronouns to, to give personhood to animals. Uh, and I, I haven't really been stopped. Sometimes they change it. Oftentimes now, you know, in the last couple of years, not so much. So it's good to see that there's flexibility there. It'd be great to see it um really put as the standard and the rule but the fact that it's even being allowed outside of the style guides is a good sign mm, yeah that is a good sign I'd like do you have any idea of the history about how that even came about is it just because we believed that animals were inanimate objects I think you're right I think that's what it is I think that this is just a concept that had never been considered before um, and, you know, like this idea of, you know, granting personhood legally to animals is a brand new concept too, somewhat, right? It's, it's in the last few years at the legal level. So the fact that these things are happening sort of simultaneously, I think really just shows that it's, it was never even thought about before. I think, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I think like this idea of language and, and how we talk about things is so important to mm. us as individual advocates and also, uh, you know, for publishers. And I, I'm really curious about self-censorship when it comes to advocates and like how we talk and, and do we, you know, yeah, like how, how we how we censor ourselves when it comes to writing for like non-vegan media. Mm -hmm. Do you do you feel that you ever self-censor when it comes to presenting, you know, animal suffering? All the time, <laughs> all the time. Um, again, different publications have different audiences and different editors who will be looking for you to write in a certain way. And as a freelancer, I have to constantly be flexible and melding myself to these different standards. I always push the limit because that's what I'm here to do. Um, but I definitely have to censor you know, my word usage, my emotive language, but I kind of take pride in that too. And that's often something I will tell people um, who are, you know, taking some of my workshops about how to write op-eds about animals. The truth is horrific enough. Uh, and also, 
people expect mainstream non-vegan audiences expect us to be crazy. So do, be clever, not crazy, right? Let the truth speak for itself. Let the facts speak for themselves. Let the stats speak for themselves. Um, so maybe it's less censorship, self-censorship censorship and more, um, more working with your audience, meeting them where they're at and not giving them that crazy vegan vibe. <laughs> right, yeah. And it can be that like if you do go in with like all of the big, like, you know, all of the things like, oh, don't you care about animals? You know, blah, blah, blah. All of these emotional things that you end up pushing people further away. Yep. And yeah, I think you're it's right. It's a tricky balance. It's a tricky balance. And, and I'm grateful for editors who have in the past reeled me in sometimes. Mm -hmm. Because when I look at old drafts of things, if I would have sent it the way that I sent it, I might not still be doing what I do now. I think being able to, to, to rein it in somewhat, for lack of a better term, is... Uh, it's helpful sometimes. Yeah. What about, so this is, I feel like we're talking about farmed animals, but what about when it comes to reporting on companion animals? Do you feel that editors are more open to stories that center companion animals? And do you feel more free to talk about their suffering when it comes to talking about yes. you know, dogs? So, so accurate. Yes. Um, the, the leeway to discuss a suffering puppy is huge because you are going to invoke emotions that 90% of the population share with you. Doing that for a pig is much more difficult and less likely to, to be effective, unfortunately. Um, I, I, there was one publication, I won't name it, um, here in Canada that I wrote for for a while that I haven't in a long time that really wouldn't let me write about farmed animals at all. Um, if, if anybody was you know, sly in the Google, they'd see I've only written about dogs and cats for this particular um, publication for the most part, because that's all they cared about. And that's all they let me do. Um, and that's how I started in this work too, writing about, you know, dog rescues and even things like circus animals uh, and, you know, captive cetaceans, things that are more broadly cared about by mainstream audiences. That's sort of a way into talking about farmed animals. Um, so it has its place. It's an effective tool, but it's absolutely true that to write about, you know, the suffering of a killer whale, or a puppy, um, you can you can definitely be much much more expressive. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's interesting. Like obviously, at Centium Media, our focus is farmed animals. But when we tell a story about zoos or about circuses or about animal testing, even um, especially animal testing on companion animals like on dogs, yes. um, that that ends up getting way more traffic than the stuff that we that we write about with uh, on farmed animals. And we, you know, that's a delicate balance to have because it's like, well, mm -hmm. that content, if we just produce that, then we could, you know, have even uh, more uh, potential reach. But actually, that's not, you know, that's not our mission. But it does help bring in, you know, we've spoken about this before, like it does help bring in different audiences who hadn't yeah. then considered, um, you know, farmed animal suffering as well. I find that even with my own work that I, I have to balance it out, you know, with certain editors and certain publications that I'm not constantly writing about farmed animals, you know, coming to, you know, issues about dogs and cats or, you know, um, animal testing as well. Um, balancing out with that because it keeps editors interested too, which is an interesting thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I feel like if you're presenting editors with a, a potential article, that's, making them question you know their moral compass then yes. it's even harder right because they yes. don't want to think about that yes being an opinion section editor has got to be a particular mind game I can't imagine that job yeah that would be really hard I'd, I'm interested like uh, about the role of, of horses here um like 
Horses are a companion animal, but they're also, uh, you know, used for, for work. They're also uh, eaten and, and farmed. What's been your experience? Because you've reported on all different aspects, uh, mm-hmm. you know, of, of, of horses and horses' lives. Um, what's been your kind of take on, on the way that we talk about horses and our, our relationship with horses in the media? Aren't they really a particular type of animal in that way? Within the social social context, they really check so many different boxes and I find that when I'm writing about horses because here in Canada we have an issue with the horse meat trade it's one of the biggest uh, animal rights and welfare issues that we have here we're still fighting it we're making progress Um, and when I write about horses I have a lot of different readers than I would normally have because they are pets but they're also working animals like you said Um, also talking about things like police horses that's a whole nother issue um, and then what about the use of horses in the carriage industry? That's a whole other issue. We had that just uh, recently, that horrible issue in New York. So it's come up again. Um, it really shows what your audience could potentially look like because it bridges this, this concept of companion animal, working animal and farmed animal. I think studying audience reaction to stories about horses in different degrees could tell us a lot about how we could go forward talking about farmed animals. That's a really interesting idea. And I, I wonder, like, do you have any idea of, of the numbers of horses that are bound up in any of these individual industries? I know, interestingly enough, um, as we were sort of mentioning before, um, this misrepresentation of animals in the media in Canada, when we talk about the horse meat industry, to get the actual number of horses is not easy. But to get the monetary value of the business, it's in the millions. It's in the millions. Um, and isn't that an interesting point? It's like the same as when we talk about fish farming. You know, if there's a, a fish farm that has um, had a horrible uh, issue and all fish have died, and often you'll hear about it in weight, right? Monetary loss and weight of product. Uh, but yes, yeah, so back to the horses. It's, it's, a, it's a massive industry here in Canada, um, the horse meat industry, unfortunately, both the export of live horses to Japan for sashimi, but also the export of um, slaughtered meat. Mm. I remember, uh, I believe it was for Senyan Media, but it was definitely one of your pieces where you were speaking about the horses that were being transported um, to Japan and they, some of them used to be pets. So they used yeah. to be animals. So they have like, you know, rosettes and stuff like yes. that, you know, it's tragic. Because, um, because this is where horses end up, whether they're, you know, a, a pet who could no longer be ridden because, that, because, you know, isn't that interesting about horses that that's often where their use ends, right? Like a dog or a cat is our companion pretty much for the most part forever uh, until they're, till they pass away. But with horses, it's often until their use is used up, right? Whether they're used for racing or barrel, whatever it is, uh, or, or riding, once they're no longer able to do that, it's like they're no longer their, your companion, right? And so many of them end up at this horse auction uh, that happens across Canada. And the horse auction is typically bought up by the meat buyer. That's what they're referred to as. So it's not like you just like, you know, send your dog to a shelter and hopefully somebody, you know, rescues it with a kind heart. They go to the, the auction where they could either be bought by someone who wants to take on an old horse or the meat buyer. That's a crazy concept. It's a really crazy concept. And actually this week we've seen articles coming out about the horses, uh, the female horses in Iceland who have the hormone in them that's extracted in order to be fed to the pigs and and cows 
uh, to make them more fertile in the UK. So in the UK, we have this, you know, uh, this kind of argument with France a lot of the time about, you know, the consumption of horse meat. And, you know, a lot of British people, you know, are are very against uh, the consumption of of horse meat and riding schools are are a very big deal uh, in English culture in particular. And the idea that, um, you know, people who love riding horses or people who have horses or believe that you know they're you know they they have a relationship with their horse and then they go and eat you know a a pork sandwich whatever that that has been from the exploitation of a horse in another country like it's just it's insidious like the whole the whole system the whole uh, animal agriculture system it's it's insidious and people don't um don't often question it or think about it like that right but what a great opportunity to have that conversation right horses give us that opportunity to talk about hypocrisy within these thoughts towards what animals we eat and what animals we love exactly yeah yeah it's really interesting and and another area that i'm interested to get your take on um we just published an article i don't know if you've read it but it's uh, one study and five different headlines so there was this one study that came out um and five different outlets uh reported on it caroline uh Kristen wrote it uh for as one of our um staff writers and it's it's on this one study about the Im- the health impacts of meat-free diets on children uh and basically yes. Yeah, each outlet like picked a different aspect of the study to highlight uh, and essentially one that supported their bias. So there's a couple of examples. One is that um, from children, uh, so children are twice as likely to be underweight as those who eat meat. Um, And then there was another one that said, kids who live on vegetarian food are no less fit than those who eat meat. Um, And it's like, okay, so you have these two like kind of polar opposite things. One says- kids are going to be dangerously underweight and one is saying actually it's totally fine but it's all coming from the same blooming study um and I was wondering like you know how do you n- navigate conflicting information or or conflicting news and headlines oh cherry-picked stats oh my gosh it is such a prevalent problem uh, I actually just published a piece with um, corporate nights magazine here in Canada um about the meat industry's efforts to fund um, research to be able to undermine um, climate change claims associated with animal agriculture. Um, And then also to cherry pick information from existing studies in order to publish news articles or uh, further publications of things that really change the narrative about how impactful animal agriculture is on the environment. It's constant. Um, and having to go down that rabbit hole, clicking those extra links, going back to the actual study is key always. Um, and I work in the media and, and I can say that the media can cherry pick things and totally tell a different story. I think going back to the study and then looking at the conflicts that have to be disseminated with from the uh, researchers and who funds them. You have to look at that. Uh, unfortunately, science is not black and white, um, and it's important to go down that rabbit hole every single time. Yeah, and it can be really difficult to find out the actual funder of a piece. Mm-hmm. So, you mm-hmm. know, the meat industry has all of these, you know, um, nonprofits and charities. Yes, think on. tanks and things. Yes, it's exactly. so true. Or, or it's like it's a feed company or a seed company that mm-hmm. sounds all wholesome, but then you go and see, well, who owns the feed company and who are they feeding? Um, yeah, so you're so right. They have all of these different foundations and things. Exactly. And, I, you know, especially when it comes to like climate crisis and numbers around the impact, um, mm-hmm. you know, of different, uh, you know, different 
um, greenhouse gas emitters. I think that, uh, yeah, I read a piece yesterday that was from, uh, you know, a meat industry. I think it was, a you know, the National Hog Farmer or, or something like that. Mm. And it was saying that um, the animal agriculture, if we eradicated animal agriculture, it would only remove 0.7% of greenhouse gas emissions <laughs> and it's like okay so you go back to how they kind of made that conclusion yes. and and actually the 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 article or the you know the standards that they were looking at were uh, in the u.s specific and they'd had this number that had been approved that said it was 10 percent uh it contributed 10 percent to emissions and it, it this kind of like getting these numbers and kind of understanding the complexity of them you know i, I know nicholas carter does a great job of, of that's my go-to guy he's he's <laughs> the guy who crunches the numbers for me because it can be dizzying and even like the measurement tools right like they come up with a new way to measure the you know the methane impact and i always have to go back to nicholas carter and say okay what the heck is happening here and he explains it to me like i'm five years old so shout out to nicholas he's the only one that keeps me in the know about all of these different measurement tools uh, and claims that the industry is making uh, about how not only is their impact lower, but that they're actually saving the planet. <laughs> mm, yeah, exactly. And I think, the, is it the um, the National Chicken Council, was it last year, they just started to release their climate impact reports. Mm. And, you know, it, they're setting their own parameters, they're setting their own, you know, yeah. net zero uh guidelines but yeah his website nicholas cars is a plant-based data.org right? yeah that's right yeah, yeah. plant-based data.org but and a thing about the chickens i um, another one for corporate nights that i wrote about here in canada the canadian chicken council i think it's called mm. um they're they're trying to sell chicken meat as you know the most sustainable meat um and their parameters one of the things they talked about was their renewable energy and <laughs> because it was something like because their feed was grown by the sun. They were counting that towards their use of renewable energies or something. It was like, my editors were like, is this what we think it is? Is this what they're really saying? We have to go back and check it and, and, and qualify it with them. And we're like, yeah, that's really what they're saying. That's incredible. Um, yeah, yeah I, I guess this would be a good time to kind of think about um, greenwashing, which is something you've covered yeah. a lot for us at Senior Media. Um, I was wondering if you could just explain, uh, firstly, what greenwashing is, uh, and secondly, you know, what the problem is with, with greenwashing. Greenwashing is such a widespread problem, um, and now it's actually fed into these new versions of humane washing and even blue washing. Um, but basically it's, you know, the use of, of bogus claims about any kind of product that is somehow eco-friendly or even eco-beneficial um, when it's not the case. And we see this so commonly now, you know, down the meat aisle, egg aisle, dairy aisle, where we're seeing buzzwords used that are often not at all qualified in any way, are not regulated by, say, the USDA in any way, um, that are, are just marketing terms that are, are trying to make consumers feel better, you know, eco-conscious or socially conscious consumers who are just looking for a way to eat these products and feel okay about it. Um, and they're going to go towards often text in, in green, um, saying that, you know, this, this egg is somehow better for the planet than this other egg beside it. And you're probably going to pay a little bit more too, to make it feel good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I, that kind of segues into labeling as well and yes. how, how meat and dairy industries label their products. Like there's one here in the UK called happy eggs um oh and yeah and there's literally just a happy chicken on the on the front of the of the packet and actually um they're one of the worst obviously the chickens are in one of the worst uh conditions um 
of the eggs that you can buy here. Um, you've written about the the labeling and certification stuff for us um, as well, right? Like, what's what's been the biggest uh, battle that you that you think that we're we're facing with that? The unfortunate thing is is now to see the meat, dairy, and egg industries fighting back with the labeling issues and taking companies like Sato Furky to court and costing all this money and using up all these resources over stupid labeling issues, which is really just a defensive play, right? To be able to use words like, you know, meat and milk and butter um, under the guise that consumers are confused. Nobody's confused. Nobody's confused. It's all just a way to try and undermine these products, use up their resources, these companies. Um, and it seems to be an ongoing problem, especially in certain states in the U.S. Um, and I worry that that's going to get worse um, as, as the defense gets stronger because these products, these plant-based products are becoming more and more popular. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, it is. It is concerning, and it is just that whether or not they they win, it's the it's the waste of resource within you yes. know, a, a, an organization that like you know has far less resource than you know Tyson, whatever. Exactly. Um, I mean, on on that topic, um, it'd be great to cover ag gag laws. This is something that obviously we're you, you know acutely aware of um, in the space that we're working in. Um, but I wonder if you could explain what are our gag laws and what's the status in Canada at the moment? Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and yeah, what are we fighting? What are we up against? It's an ongoing issue. Um, it started in the US and it's now spread to Canada. They're basically laws that to varying degrees um, deter undercover investigations, deter journalists, deter activists from entering agricultural spaces and gathering evidence, footage, and disseminating it to the public. Um, here in Canada, we now have egg-egg style laws uh, here in my province of Manitoba, in Ontario, in Alberta, and somewhat uh, Prince Edward Island. And they really came about once um, activists started entering farms pre-pandemic and capturing evidence and putting it on social media or giving it to mainstream media. Uh, and also groups like Mercy for Animals that were doing a lot of undercover investigations, whistleblowers that, you know, staff who started having an issue with things that were going on, who were setting up cameras, like we've also seen in the U.S. through Direct Action Everywhere in particular. Um, so currently I'm, I'm part of a lawsuit against the government of Ontario, along with Animal Justice, uh, an animal rights law firm here, uh, and an activist stating that it goes against our, our rights and freedoms to not be able to have this information. Uh, you know, my, my work as a journalist is being impeded. So much of the work I've done in the past has been based on information gathered by undercover investigations, whistleblowers and activists. And, you know, we have a lot of evidence based on articles that sh would not have been able to be written without that very important work. That's of great public interest. So it's an ongoing battle. Um, a lot of them have been struck down in the US as unconstitutional. And we're hoping the same thing happens here. Do you find that um, media outlets, because this is something that impacts uh, the media industry like so acutely, do you find that media outlets are more open to covering stories about ag gag laws or is it another kind of no-go area? It depends on the timing. Um, I think there has been a lot of good coverage about it. I know I've been able to write a lot about it, um, but it's usually just when it's kind of happening. Um, so now that it's sort of, in the background, you know, say the issue of, of bird flu, avian flu. Um, I tweeted a couple of days ago saying that, you know, we have millions of animals being 
depopulated these horrific on-farm depopulation methods, mass killing of animals that are stuck in barns and the heat's cranked or the gas is added. But we don't get to see what that looks like, right? In the U.S., we saw that horrific undercover footage from a whistleblower in, what was it, Iowa, that Direct Iowa. Action Everywhere was able to um, acquire. Yeah. In Canada, no one knows what this looks like because in the provinces where it's probably happening the most is where we now have these laws. Uh, and it's it's a huge fine um, and possible jail time in places for people to go in and, and gather this information. So it's impeding our work right now, but to have that go into the media, um, they don't really want to talk about it right now. I, I've been talking a little bit about avian flu um, as a you know broader sign that our, our animal-based food system is flawed. Um, but as far as egg gate goes, it's it's usually just if it's you know making the headlines at the moment. Do you feel that we're like kind of entering pandemic fatigue where we've been reporting, you know, COVID has been a new cycle, you know, for two years. And mm. now we have this other, you know, avian flu coming out, which is, you know, we, we constantly have these outbreaks. Right. But avian flu seems to be bigger than, you know, a lot of the other ones that we also you know, saw mm -hmm. during the last two years. Do you feel that the kind of reluctance to cover it uh, is just this pandemic fatigue? I think it's a combination of that and also the fact that it's animals and not people, right? Like if avian flu was really, I mean, we have seen a couple of cases within mm -hmm. people, but it's really just, as soon as the, as soon as the, you know, expert advice comes out that it's not really a risk to humans, people lose interest. You know, no one cares about the fact that, you know, social distancing was such an important thing for us during a pandemic, but now that we're cramming thousands and thousands of birds into barns and they're all getting sick and having to be gassed to death, where's their social distancing, right? No one's talking about that because it's not people and they don't care. Do you think that's like the crux of it? That's like, I mean, that's essentially the, you know, why we don't talk about these issues is it's not people. A hundred percent. We're selfish as a species. <laughs> um, and the fact that, you know, an outlet like sentient media has to exist is because we're having to, you know, claw and scrape this space for animals within the media landscape, because if we didn't do it, nobody would, because a lot of people don't care. But that's our that's our mission is to make people care. And I think we're, we're doing a good job of it slowly, but surely bringing in that empathy for other beings, proving to people that animals can suffer and that that should matter to them. And I think I think it's it's working and it's happening. And, you know, great writers like through the sentient media community who are going out there with the skills that are being taught and, you know, writing those letters to the editor uh, and trying to get in those those pieces of, of conversation with animals in the media. It's all working. Yeah. And I, I also like one of the things that we've been working hard to do at sentient media is cover the intersections. So covering the human angle, like the, the exploitation of humans that goes hand in hand with factory farming yep. and industrial animal agriculture. Um, yeah, and we actually get some, we've, we've had some pushback on that in the sense of some, um, you know, animal advocates would rather, we just spoke about the animal issue. Um, what, what's your take on that? I think it's a good strategy. Not everybody's gonna get it. You know, it's this, this odd dilemma of, do we empathize with slaughterhouse workers? Really, that's what it comes down to so much, or, or barn workers. Um, my personal perspective is, of course, um, you know, being vegan in my perspective isn't just about animals, it's political, it's intersectional. That's my perspective. Um, and, and I think there are different victims. Uh, the animal agricultural system, the institution victimizes 
almost everybody that it touches, except for those at the higher up. And I think um, there's a strategy to, talk, to telling the stories of those humans that are involved in order to get more sympathy from, from selfish humans. Um, and I think to, to speak only about animals has a place, but it's strategically not effective. I saw you on um, Twitter yesterday, I think, or the day before, talking about, like, you know, you were talking with um, Marina about, like, life would be so much easier if an editor would just give mm. you a factory farming column. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I, I mean, I feel like we've kind of, we, we've covered this, but I mean, why why doesn't every outlet at least have, have that? Like, because food and agriculture, is everything you know you eat at least three times a day you know most people <laughs> right um <laughs> i eat way more but people don't want to hear about well, the fact that what they're eating three times a day is bad mm. i th i think that's what it comes down to if you have a i, I think it's going to come i think marina will get a factory farming column and once she does then it'll make the way for me <laughs> <laughs> um and i think it'll happen but for the most part like it's so much of what we see now with this discourse about um good meat right? And good farming, regenerative, holistic grazing, uh, small family farm. People are trying to find a way to feel good about it, right? I think it's a general consensus now that factory farming is bad. But to have the factory farming is bad conversation move into, well, kind of all animal farming is bad, is a much harder thing to do. So, you know, we see a lot of these animal welfare organizations who are trying so hard to make chicken farming better, you know, mm. the better chicken commitment. And I think that will be more accessible to broader audiences at this point in time, because it means they can still keep eating what they want to eat. They're just going to pay a little bit more for it. Um, so I think there's a ways to go to get this idea that there really isn't a right way to farm animals um, before we can really have this as a mainstream regular conversation. Mm, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, um, I, I saw recently Faunalytics released a study. I don't know if you've read it, but it highlights that news articles and social media content um, are like among the most highly effective methods at influencing diet change. Um, did you see that study at all? Yes. Yeah, it's awesome. And I think, you know, on the one hand, that is super great news. But on the other hand, it's also kind of scary because the plant-based message gets so muddied. And I've already mentioned this article, you know, that, um, you know, the uh, the one study, five different headlines yep. article and this, you know, the cherry picking, like you say. And the other day I, I saw a piece um, in the Telegraph that said uh, the title was how a vegan diet takes the joy out of life. I um, saw that. Oh my gosh. I couldn't even, I, I couldn't even engage with it. Um, but, but you know how many people will click that because they'll be like, yes, I agree with that. Let me have my confirmation bias, please. Exactly. Confirmation bias is exactly is it, it, that's what we all want. We all want confirmation of, of that what we're doing is the right thing. Um, yes, yes. And, and I wrote about that for Sentient Media. Just I think they reshared it yesterday on Twitter with that psychologist who talked mm -hmm. all about that. That if you have to think about this, that's going to make you take an action. Otherwise, you're going to feel bad about it. Uh, speaking with him was very was very helpful. Yeah, that was a great piece. Um, yeah, that yeah, I'll, I'll link to that for sure. Um, I mean. I feel like it, we're because it's such a small percentage of content that's going out that is sharing like a, a positive, you know, vegan mm -hmm. message. Like, I don't know. I wonder how you feel about the impact of your articles. Like, do you get feedback from readers? Do you feel like the, I mean, good feedback? 
<laughs> um, do you feel like it, you know, you, you're, you're, you're starting to make waves at least, I mean, you're very present on social media. You have a great following. Um, I think, um, it depends. It depends on the topic. I find when I write anything against the dairy industry, I probably get the most flack of all. Um, people are really not really wanting to give up their dairy. It's crazy to me, which, cause to me, it's like the cruelest of all, but, um, it really depends. Like, so for example, when I wrote this uh, recent op-ed for the Toronto Star about um, the Niagara Falls wanting to have 144 consecutive nights of fireworks and how horrible that's going to be for the surrounding environment and, and wildlife and, and animals and people, people really don't want to give up fireworks. I get so much hate from people whenever I write against fireworks. Um, so it depends. Some things it seems like people are willing to talk more about and consider so when I wrote about um, plant-based chicken being more becoming more popular and you know this influx of new products in Canada of plant-based chicken being available at convenience stores and stuff people really were into that because I think it, it's giving people um, something that they can do to try that's not that hard we're not talking about what you have to give up you're talking about something you can try so it really depends on the content some works and some <laughs> and I think that's also interesting psychology of like talking to people about what they can add rather than what they have to remove. Yes, which is unfortunate in some ways because you see this influx in say plant-based milk, but not really a decline um, equally in, in dairy. So there's a lot of people adding plant-based to their life without taking the bad stuff away as much. Mm, yeah, exactly. And I, you know, like you said before, meeting people where they're at, like I know yep. people like in my circle who have like slowly, slowly, slowly reduced and there'll be one leftover, you know, residual thing from, from meat and dairy in their diet, but yeah, way less <laughs> than before. Yes. That, the, that whole reducitarian concept. Um, there was a great documentary by the reducitarian group called meet me halfway MEAT, which I thought was really well done, really, really appropriate for the here and now um, and I, and you know this idea of perfectionism within veganism I think is counterproductive and um, the reducing thing a lot of people don't don't like it I like it mm. I mean I I've been vegan vegetarian I've been aware and, and you know cognizant of animals like since I was six I made that decision and I like I didn't realize I didn't actually join the animal protection movement professionally until I joined sentient media like a couple ah. of years ago um, so I've been working in different fields and for me, like when I came into this space, I did not realize all the nuances of like how so vegan you can be. Totally. Yeah. So yes. And, and so, and so in my work too, um, I can get flack also from, you know, the animal community too, because sometimes it's, it's as if I'm not saying enough and I, I appreciate the work at sentient media in particular, because it, this really gives me a space to say those extra things that I can't always say in the mainstream media. Mm. Um, and so this, this is the outlet where I can say what I really think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's good. I'm really glad that we can provide a, a, a home for you to be able to create that content and all of the other writers that we have with us. Um, but yeah, it, it, it has been a, a funny experience. Like I was never aware of, you know, the animal welfare versus animal rights debate. Right. It's a, it's a big one. It's a yeah. big one. And I put in my bio that I write about both animal welfare and animal rights and some animal rights folks don't like that, but I consider writing about companion animals, animal welfare. And I do sometimes write about, um, you know, improvements to animal agriculture, which I don't like to do, but sometimes there's a time and space for it. 
Yeah, it's like there has to be a balance. It's, you know, yeah. and also just in the sense of like meeting people where they're at and, and, and bringing people out. into the conversation. Yeah, exactly. And and something's going to resonate, you know, one thing that somebody says is yep. going to resonate with, with somebody else. And yeah, I think yep, it's totally. so important to be versatile and, and, and open to things and, and not... Mm-hmm holding each other you know accountable no vegan policing please yeah (laughs) like let's just be nice Um, (laughs) be kind see look (laughs) yeah exactly yeah exactly exactly um so I guess it'd be great to hear I mean you always have so many ideas you're like like I said at the start like your finger is on the pulse like you're always coming at me like in my inbox with with like different <laughs> awesome things in all your different inboxes Instagram yeah, Twitter yeah. anytime I have a thought I'm just no I'm just writing this here so I don't forget <laughs> exactly exactly um so I was wondering if there was like one story or one untold story that you were desperate to write that you feel needs airtime what would it be I think this is something you and I have been talking about and I really, really am excited to work on it with Sentient Media is really tapping into Indigenous voices and Indigenous perspectives on animal farming um, and climate change and how we can better listen to those who know the earth and know the land um, and really learn and really learn and listen to, to those voices. That's something I really want to get into and I think is something that is not being tapped into as much as it should be by any means especially here in Canada, it's such a top of the mind issue with truth and reconciliation, um, something that needs to be told. And I really want to give voice to those who know the earth the best. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm so excited to work on this with you. Um, and yeah, I can't, can't wait to, to, to get started. Um, mm-hmm. So finally, to just wrap things up, like how can our listeners and viewers, how can they find you and, and support your work? Um, most of my written work I share via Twitter, which is at Jess LSR or no, Jess L Reed, R-E-I-D. And then on Instagram, it's Jess LSR, where I share more of my plant-based food, my vegan parenting, more of my personal side of my advocacy and also my work too. So you can, you can get it all through those two channels. Yeah. And I would recommend people to like have a full belly when they look at your Instagram. Cause every time I look at your Instagram, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I need to eat some more food now. <laughs> it's so fun. Cooking plant-based food has just opened my world. It is my favorite hobby uh, and, and eating it. So it works out good. <laughs> I don't know about you. Like for me, cooking is so important. Like, and I don't get to cook every day because yeah, I have to work late. Um, but on the days when I have to, when I get to cook, it's just like, right. Shut the world out. And oh therapeutic right oh my god on a bad day making a good soup saves my soul yeah not chicken soup for the soul veggie soup for the soul absolutely absolutely um yeah we'll share all of the links um in the in the notes here as well um well jess it has been so awesome speaking to you i could speak to you for 50 million i know right we can do this forever yes thank you so i forgot we were doing a podcast probably overshared um but no it's been it's been awesome uh talking with you thank you so much for your time thank you for having me i'm excited to keep going forward with sentient media